Right, as we come to, to God's word together, let's ask for his help as we uh, seek to, to learn from it and listen to him and um, be transformed. So let, let me pick up some words that we've read already from Psalm 119. Give me understanding, Lord, so that I may keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Turn my heart towards your statutes and not towards selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Heavenly Father, we, we echo those words and pray that you would um, grant us hearts that delight in you above all else. Would you give us a longing to, to know you, to live for you, and a hunger for your word? Would you help us to understand your word um, and apply it to our lives and our hearts? Thank you that you've given us your spirit, you've given us your word, and you've given us one another. And we pray that you would work in us um, for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Great. Well, do keep um, 1 Samuel 24 open up in, in front of you. But as we start, I want to ask you how patient you are. How patient are you? Are you good at waiting? Um, we live in a culture that hates waiting, don't we? Uh, here's, a, here's a stat from the kind of finance world. Um, three quarters of all the credit card debt in the whole of Europe is found, is held just here in the UK. It's extraordinary, isn't it? It says something about our ability to wait for things not being that great. I don't know if you've ever done any um, delayed gratification experiments with your kids or your grandkids or, or, or that kind of thing. I, maybe you've not come, maybe you've come across that before, maybe not. But here's, here's the thing. If, if I was to say to my kids... You can have one sweet now, or you can have a whole bunch of sweets in 45 minutes time. What do you think they're going to go for? Every time it's that I'll have this one sweet now, please. <laughs> we just can't wait. That it just seems how we're, we're wired or, or whether it's a kind of cultural conditioning or who knows. But now is what we pick every day. Waiting is hard. Being patient in a culture like that and with desires like that is is not easy and in our passage today we're looking at a crucial point in David's life and in the history of 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 God's people David has an opportunity to take a shortcut is he going to try and take it and grasp that or is he going to be patient is he going to in faith trust himself, trust his future into God's sovereign hands. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's get on and find out, shall we? So the context here in, in, uh, in chapter 24 is that we find David still in the wilderness and still on the run from King Saul. In the previous chapter we saw last week, there's this narrow escape, almost cartoon-like, as they're on one side of the mountain and Saul and the others are on the other side of the mountain, and they sort of miss each other. And, and 
And God sovereignly raises up the Philistines to attack just at the right moment to take Saul away from uh, getting David as he was closing in on him. And so David and his men um, head east to Engedi. Engedi is on the uh, it's on the western shore of of the Dead Sea. There's loads of caves there. There's a freshwater spring several hundred feet um, high up on a huge cliff, and there's space to graze sheep. Um, sounds very picturesque, doesn't it? Um, but the first two verses in chapter uh, twenty-four, the narrator points out the huge military advantages that Saul has as in his relentless pursuit of of David and it's interesting the narrative doesn't even mention how Saul got on with the Philistines that he got distracted to go away and and sort out so we kind of assume that he did okay otherwise he probably wouldn't be back so soon so 24 chapter 24 verses 1 and 2 we see that Saul's got spies intelligence officers everywhere filling him in on David's whereabouts and, and what's going on and secondly we see that he's got 3,000 men with him 3,000 specifically chosen from all, all Israel to be on this task force to hunt David down so that's Saul on the one hand looking pretty good with with that with, with those things David on the other hand now has about 600 men with him. But it's not an, an elite crack team of Royal Marine Commandos, as we saw back in chapter 22. These are men who are distressed and in debt. These are a, a ragtag bunch of downtrodden men who've just gravitated towards David in, in, in the midst of his troubles. So David is outnumbered. Five to one, if you do the maths. I think that's about right. And Saul, as always, <clears throat> seems to have the advantage, doesn't he? At all times, he's surrounded by servants and soldiers. He can sit down on a, under a tree when, whenever he likes, quite, quite happily. He can miss catching David one, a particular day many times over and live to hunt David another day. But David knows that just one slip up and it's all over, not just for him, but uh, judging by how ruthlessly Saul has put to death anyone who's helped David in any way so far. It's over for all those other guys as well. So in verse three, we read that Saul uh, it's quite comical really in some ways, isn't it? Saul uh, sees a cave and goes in to relieve himself, not realizing that David and his men are, are way back in, in the cave. Of all the caves to pick, he picks this one. There's loads there, but he walks into this one with David and his men on his own to relieve himself. Wow, what's gonna happen? Just in those three verses, the narrator's got us hooked on, on what's going on in, in, in the drama of this story. It's, it's high stakes, high tension drama. It's worthy of a, a, a Sunday nine o'clock um, slot on BBC One, isn't it? And that's sort of, we see Saul at his most vulnerable. What an opportunity. 
And David's men clearly think this is a divinely ordained opportunity. Have a look at verse four, what they say. This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Well, they're actually embellishing a little bit on what the Lord had actually said in the previous chapter when David sought the Lord before going to rescue the people of, of Keilah from, from the Philistines. 23 verse 4, the Lord said he'd give the Philistines into your hand. The Philistines, not enemies. And he didn't say anything about dealing with us as you wish there either. But you can understand these, these guys, these men, putting Saul and the Philistines in the same enemy bracket, in the same boat. This is the day, they say. And so we can kind of picture, visualise David stealthily moving through the cave in the darkness, sword in one hand, holding his breath, trying not to step on any twigs or that sort of thing, as he's creeping up on Saul, who's doing his business. And then with one swift, silent, skillful movement, he cuts off the corner of his robe. Talk about anticlimax. David resists killing Saul. When the, with the opportunity right there, he resists. And have a look at verse five and six. David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. He's conscience stricken by, by what he's done. He feels it in the pit of his stomach. Why, why does he feel so bad about cutting the corner of, of his robe? Well, have a think back to where we've seen robes so far in the story of, of 1 Samuel. It's right there in chapter 15, when God rejects Saul as king, Saul grabs Samuel's robe and it tears. And Samuel turns to him and says, so the kingdom will be torn away from you and given to one better than you. And then in chapter 18, verse four, uh, Jonathan and David, a great moment in their friendship and in their covenant that they make to one another Jonathan symbolically gives David his robe symbolically handing over his kingdom to to David to the one he knows is God's anointed and then in chapter 20 as, as Jonathan and David um, reaffirm their covenant uh, relationship and promises to each other Jonathan asked David don't cut off your kindness from my family, he says. Maybe all those things are in, in, in David's mind as, as he's creeping through the, uh, after he's cut off the corner of, of Saul's robe. It could be it's seen as a, a symbolic act of revolt, staking a claim on the kingdom. And he's instantly filled with regret about it, isn't he? Cutting off the corner of his robe is, is, is too far already in, in David's mind, in David's conscience and, and heart. And he will not even consider taking his life. 
but his men just don't understand that at all. And he has to work extremely hard to persuade them not to kill Saul right then and there. Actually, the language that's used there is, is really strong. It literally says he has to tear into them to keep them from going after Saul. The Lord forbid I should, I should do such a thing to the Lord's anointed, he says. What David understood that his men didn't was that the kingdom had been given to Saul by the Lord. And it was up to the Lord to, to take it from him in his own timing, in his own good purposes and will. And whilst David, too, was the Lord's anointed, he'd been promised the kingdom. And that promise had been remade and restated, even in the wilderness, uh, but by meeting up with Jonathan, uh, again, as we saw last week. What David knew was that that kingdom that he was promised was to be given to him, not taken by him. The kingdom was to be given to him by the Lord, not, not taken by David himself. It shows extraordinary integrity and faith in uh, David, doesn't it? In the, in the face of intense pressure. He got the pressure of the situation. He's on the run for his life and has been for a significant period of time. Now, he must be weary and afraid yeah. because there's the pressure of the men both in the cave there with him saying, this is a no brainer, David. Surely God has ordained this. Just kill him. Get on with it. And the added pressure of actually as a leader, the responsibility he bears for their lives and, and well-being, surely that would have been weighing upon him heavily too, that actually his decisions don't just affect him, but affect those guys too. All of that pressure. And this is it. This is the, this is the shortcut you could take to get what you've already been promised already. Just reach out, grab it, make it happen. But David knows that's not how it works. And he can't in good conscience do that. It's remarkable integrity, but it's remarkable faith, isn't it? In trusting himself to God's sovereign plans. Even though he can't foresee how that might happen, he trusts that God's in control and that God is good. And so Saul leaves the cave unharmed and totally unaware of how close he was to harm whilst he was in there. And from verses 8 to 15, as Saul is making his way back down to the men, David comes out of the cave and calls out to him. He bows to the floor. Did you notice that? Paying homage to his king. And he effectively says to Saul, you're wrong about me. You've been ill-informed. Stop listening to what everyone else is saying. And he proves his innocence by showing the corner of, of his robe that he'd cut off, holding it out 
this proves that, that I mean you no harm. Notice how he refers to himself as a flea and a dead dog. In other words, why are you, the king of Israel, even bothering to come after someone who is as worthless as, as me? I'm nothing. But he doesn't quite leave it there. He does want to push back and to challenge the king as well. I'm innocent, he says, but evil comes out of evildoers. Verse 13, as the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. So if I'm innocent, but there's still evil happening, well, then the implication is that one of us is an evildoer and I'm the innocent one. So Saul, it must be you that is the guilty one. Now that's the implication of what David is, is saying there. How's Saul going to respond? Is he going to throw a spear? Is he going to throw his toys out of the pram? Is he going to call the infantry to unleash hell? How's he going to, what's he going to do? This is one of those moments when the course of history kind of hangs in the balance. Everyone holds their breath. How's he going to respond? It's unexpected, isn't it? He uses David's name. As we've seen in the last few, well, a big chunk of this, of, of what we've been looking at in, in recent weeks, he doesn't even say David's name. He, called, he refers to him as the son of Jesse. For the first time, he uses David's name and then he weeps. He breaks down in tears and weeps. And we see him acknowledge a number of, of really key things, doesn't he? he? He acknowledges that David has treated him well and that he has treated David badly. In verse 17, you are more righteous than I. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly, he says. In verse 20, he acknowledges that he knows David will be king. I know that you will surely be king and the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. And just as Jonathan had done previously in, in chapter 20, Saul appeals to David for protection for his family. Have a look, verse um, 20, 21, 22. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So there it is. At long last, we've we've heard it. These things that that King Saul has finally acknowledged, we've heard it and his troops would have heard it, too. And it's not an acknowledgement that's been forced out at knife point. But rather through the righteousness and mercy of David. And so they go there. Separate ways at the end of, of the chapter, Saul goes home and David goes up to the stronghold. Perhaps he's not quite ready to take Saul at his word just yet. Um, so yet again, in this book, there's intense drama here, isn't there? But what are we to learn from it? What has this incident got to do with us 
today? That's a fair question, isn't it? Uh, David's example of faith here, I think, is, is hugely instructive for us. It gets right at the heart of actually what faith is and what it looks like to, to, to live by faith in the nitty gritty realities of life. And if you're someone who would describe themselves as, as not a Christian listening in to this today, I want you to see that what we're talking about when we talk about faith in God is, is not something that's just a, a nice hobby for a Sunday, like line dancing or lawn bowls. Rather, the truths that we believe about God, about who he is, about what he's like, those truths profoundly shape our lives as Christians like nothing else. In fact, these truths that we believe and trust in about God are truths to stake your life on, are truths to stake your future on, your eternal future. Because what we see in this chapter is David entrusting himself to God by faith. He, he leaves the justice to God. That's the kind of continuing refrain in, in his words to, to Saul. Rather than taking it in his own hands, he shows incredible patience and faith and in God's sovereignty and in God's goodness. He's pinning everything on God's greatness and on his and God's goodness. Put simply, he trusts that God is in control and that God is good. And I think that's the Christian life, isn't it? That's what it, it boils down to. Living a life trusting that God is in control and that he is good. He's the king. And I need to actively trust him because he knows what's best. And he's working for, for my best. It's very easy to say those sort of grand truths in, in a simple way like that. But what does it look like in the, on the coal face, if you like, of life, in, in the nitty gritty reality of everyday life? What does it look like when our computers just crashed and, and we fear we've lost that piece of work we've been working on for so long or when we put the phone down after talking to a friend who's in a, a really difficult situation that they're going through and we put the phone down and we just feel powerless to be able to help them in, in any meaningful way or when you've when we've just barely got enough coming in to cover the bills that are going out and the spouse rings to say the car's broken down for the third time this month. Or when our kids finally open up to say, actually, they're struggling to fit in at school and nobody really gets them. Or when you're overlooked for promotions at work again and again, despite being hardworking and, and loyal. Or when the opportunity to get into a relationship that we know won't be good for us comes up and 
it's been so long since an opportunity like that has come along and, and, and here's an opportunity. What does trusting God, saying you're in control, saying you are good, look like then in those situations? Well, let me ask, put it a different way. When we doubt those things about God, when we doubt he's in control, what do we do to try and fix those situations as, as they come up? What, what happens? What does it look like when we, when we doubt those things? All too often, we can try to wrestle back control in, in harmful ways. So we trample over people at work to get the promotion that, that we deserve. All too often, when we don't trust that God's in control and that he's good, we can, we can wear ourselves out with just busyness or frustration because we think it's all down to, to me. I've got to do all these things. I've got to fix them all. So I'm just going to power on through and do it. And, and we burn ourselves out. What does it look like when we don't trust that God is, is in control and that he's good? All too often we can make security and wealth a bigger priority than, than God's kingdom in our lives. And perhaps above all else, when we don't trust, when we doubt that God is in control, when we doubt that he is good, we stop praying, don't we? I wonder if any of those things are chiming with you uh, as much as they are with me. But what can we do? What, what can we do in, in those situations? What, what can help? The first thing we need to do is, is talk to God about it. Talk to God about it. And secondly, we need to remind ourselves of the truths of, of who he is. That's what David did. We might not necessarily see it in this passage, but where we do see it is in the book of Psalms. Psalm 57, Psalm 142 were written by David in this cave during this period of his life. And what does David do when he's tempted to doubt God's control and his goodness? He talks to God. He pours out his heart and his fears and his anxieties and and he reminds himself, he preaches to his heart the truths about who God is and what he's like. Maybe that's what we need to do. Well, in fact, there's no maybe about it. But this is what we need to do day by day, isn't it? So here's a challenge for you. Maybe in parenting or uh, grandparenting. Before helicoptering in to sort of take over as it's so tempting to do if, with whatever, whatever issues our kids are going through. Why not take time to pray beforehand instead? And instead of um, parenting, swapping a, a, a work situation or a situation with a difficult situation with friends or neighbours or what, whatever it is, before sort of, you know, helicoptering in to kind of take control and as it's we just it's so tempting to just rush in or to just despair um, 
instead of doing that, let's take the time to, to pray and to really pray. Um, and if that sounds um, daunting, uh, you're not quite sure what you would say or, or how, to, how to go about it. Um, something that's really helped me is, is writing out prayers sometimes. Sometimes when, it's, when, when things are really tough and you don't know what to say, write something out and read it out. Maybe that's a, a good starting point for you. So speak to God, talk to him, pour out your heart to him and remind yourself of the truth. That he's in control, that, that he is good. And you can do no better than to come to the Lord Jesus to see that once and for all, that he is in control and that he is good, that he is great, that he is gracious, that he is glorious and that he is good. Just like David, Jesus was tested in the wilderness, given opportunity of a shortcut to grasp the kingdom in his own way. But just like David, he chose to entrust himself to his father, to the one who judges justly. He chose the way of sacrifice. He, he suffered and he died on that cross in our place, the innocent for the guilty, so, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be brought into relationship with our father um, through faith. There's nothing that, that shows us both his sovereignty, his greatness, his glory, and his goodness as, as looking to the cross. There's, there's nowhere we could go to, to see how that, that we are more loved than we can possibly imagine. So as we finish up our time, I want to read some uh, famous words of Paul from Romans chapter 8. He asks a whole bunch of rhetorical questions. In this, in this great, great passage. And this is such a good passage to, to keep coming back to. Maybe print it out, stick it on your wall. Keep the great, great truths. Read these words and see this is how God loves you. So Paul says, Romans 8, starting at verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.